Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up today, raise your hand if you know the role of Georgia's Public Service Commission. If not, Keep listening. From telecommunications to transportation to natural gas, the Georgia PSC is tasked with keeping these services fair and safe for the public. And there's a lot more. Plus, what's the impact of that recent Supreme Court EPA ruling? What's at stake? Well, veteran journalist Christy Swartz talks about the latest, has the latest with the climate and environment news and all that good stuff. Also later, professor of neurology, Dr. Chantel Branson from the Morehouse School of Medicine will join me. This is ahead of tomorrow's symposium on Parkinson's disease in the African-American community. All those conversations coming up. But first, this news. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says tens of thousands of people previously registered to vote could be removed from the state's voter rolls. Now, Raffensperger gave the reasons why when he spoke to All Things Considered host Jim Burris. Because when people show up to vote, first of all, they may not even be registered. They moved, say, from one part of the state. Now, we do track you know, interstate movement if as long as they get a new driver's license. But if they haven't gotten a new driver's license and moved, from one county to another and show up, then all of a sudden you have an issue there. And then that just takes time to work through that system. And then obviously when you're expecting a certain number of people and yet you've had, you know, in this case, we had 32,820 voters apparently move out of state. Well, that would then inflate your voter rolls and the precincts are expecting a certain number. And yet they've had people that have actually moved out of state or out of their county. So it just allows you to have clean, more accurate voter rolls. Is there a price in that are there certain people who are purged who probably shouldn't be? And is that worth the um, the safety that uh, and the ease that the opposite provides? No, the only people that are moved from the voter rolls are people that don't live in Georgia anymore. That's who or if they passed away. And so we've identified nearly 33,000 voters that moved out of state. And then we also then had over 75,000 voters that moved within their county. And so you see that just points to the point that you want to make sure people show up at the right precinct. So if all of a sudden on election day, people thought that they were in precinct number one, but they're actually in precinct number 12, yet they're still in the same county. They think they're going to be voting at this one precinct, and now they have a 30-minute drive to get to back to their old precinct because they haven't updated their voter roll. So it really just makes it a better voter experience also. That's Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger speaking with WABE's Jim Burris. Now, of course, we know Georgia Secretary of State's office has been accused of disenfranchising voters in the past with these routine purges. In July of 2017, now, state officials removed more than a half million Georgians from the voter rolls for various reasons, including not voting during previous elections. That was according to a WABE investigation. Speaking of elections, Georgia Democrats are upping their pitch to become one of the first states to vote in the presidential primary. As we hear from Susanna Capaluto in a video released this week, they highlight Georgia's diversity and new political status as a battleground state. Georgia is competing with 17 other states to host one of the first presidential primaries for Democrats who are looking to possibly replace Iowa after a botched primary there in 2020. The video highlights famous Georgia Democrats like John Lewis and Jimmy Carter. It's narrated by party chair Nakima Williams. Georgia, the true north of the Democratic Party, is in the Deep South. The video also shows images of the party's new leadership. With our great diversity, political competitiveness, and proven model for battleground states everywhere, Georgia is the ideal state for any candidate to build a strong, inclusive campaign. Of course, any state chosen for an early primary can expect a huge influx in campaign ad spending. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. 
Big money means big changes are set for part of Atlanta Hartsfield's Jackson Airport. As we hear from Emil Moffitt, he breaks down the details of a new major expansion project. It's been nearly eight months since President Biden signed a $1 trillion infrastructure plan into law. Yet Georgia U.S. Senator John Ossoff says the ripple effects of that money continue to be felt in the state. And because of the role that this airport plays, not just nationally but globally, we're here with good news for the whole world. Ossoff says $40 million in federal dollars will go to help upgrade the aging Concourse D at Atlanta's airport, meaning larger seating areas, bigger restrooms, and more room on the concourse. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says the money will also create construction jobs. And our contracting opportunities will be as inclusive as ever, as we always are, to make sure that there's more business opportunities, particularly for uh, women-owned businesses and minority businesses. Airport officials say work on the project will begin in about a year, with a logistics plan in place to minimize disruption. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And finally, there's a lot of sports taking place this weekend. A lot of NASCAR fans, and I do mean a lot, will be out at the Atlanta Motor Speedway this weekend. In fact, it could be a couple hundred thousand in attendance for its second NASCAR race of the season. Alex Helmick tells us why. Attendance at the NASCAR race earlier this year in Atlanta was the highest the track had seen since 2014, according to its owner. The track itself has been refinished, and the race saw a lot of overtaking and crashes. Chase Elliott from Dawsonville led that race for a time before finishing just outside the top five. COVID is increasing again in Georgia if other sporting events are a barometer. There will be few masks in the crowd. Also, highs for the weekend could be in the low 90s. There is also a chance of thunderstorms both days. Alex Helmick, WABE News. Also this weekend, Atlanta United is back home with a match against Austin. Saturday night at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the Braves have three games with the Washington Nationals at Truist Park. Now, the Atlanta Dream have a few days off till their next game, which is Tuesday, and I'll be learning how to play pickleball tomorrow because it's all part of sports. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. And I asked you earlier to raise your hand if you fully know the role of Georgia's Public Service Commission. Not you, Christy, because we know you know. But what do we know is that from telecommunications to transportation to natural gas, we know that the Georgia Public Service Commission is tasked with keeping these services, utilities, fair and safe for all the public to enjoy. We'll also hear more about the commission's role in just a moment. But also, did you know this recent impact of the Supreme Court EPA ruling and what's at stake? Well, join me now because she's way smarter in all of this than me. Is And I use the word veteran because that's a nice way of saying she's been doing it a long time. Veteran climate and environment journalist Christy Swartz. She's a reporter with E&E News and also fresh off another successful Peachtree Road Race accomplishment. See, I keep up with you. <laughs> Thanks, Rose. It's so great to be here. It's been it's been a couple years since yeah. we've been face to face in the studio. Yeah. What was your time in the Peachtree Road Race? Oh goodness. Um, well, uh, I have to say it was my slowest 10k ever, thanks to COVID. Um, oh. I uh, I qualified for an early wave and earned my place there, but um, even a mild case of COVID in January has really wreaked havoc on my asthma well, um, okay but you're you, you're out there doing it so yeah. congratulations on that huh? yeah just kept even from my january even from january to july wow it's 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 frustrating yeah. it's just uh when when you can't do something that you love oh, regardless of how fast you're going that's, that's why i'm a, playing pickleball a... now instead of basketball because <laughs> people are like well y'all talk about climate and environment please want to hear about your personal challenges <laughs> it's my show i knew what i want <laughs> it's the first time i've ever said that in seven years <laughs> 
It's Friday, folks. Uh, so much to get to, but let's start with this Supreme Court ruling here. Inform our listeners, Christy, what this was all about here. Sure. Um, well, let's do a quick history lesson. This this challenge goes back to the days of the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and he um, was very aggressive in setting policy or encouraging Congress to set policy to um, clean up our air and water mm-hmm. and um, was trying to do um, things to clean up carbon emissions. So this goes back to the days of his wide-ranging executive order called the Clean Power Plan, mm-hmm. um, which was targeting, basically gave each state a target and said, you've got to cut your power plant mm-hmm. emissions by this amount. So um, led by West Virginia, which it's the majority of its economy uh, is was based on coal. coal. Mm-hmm. So they led the effort to say, hey, um, EPA, using this other rule called the Clean Air Act, you cannot use that mm-hmm. to craft this entire rule around that. And so the justices agreed with with, with West Virginia. On, on that specific note, yes. I mean, the ruling does not flat out handicap the EPA as it, as it stands to, mm-hmm. um, to make rules involving carbon emissions. It's just that they can't use that specific way to implement it. After the ruling, EPA Administrator uh, Michael Regan talked with PBS NewsHours. Here's a little bit of what he said. The constraint just prevents us as a country from making the progress as quickly as we need to. Climate action presents an opportunity for this country to ensure global competitiveness, create jobs, lower costs for families and protect people's health and well-being, especially those who have suffered uh, from the burden of inaction for far too long. And so, yes, today's action is a disappointing uh, action. It's, uh, It's devastating in many ways, as the president has said, but it doesn't take us out of the game. And we're going to continue to use every tool we have uh, to keep pace with tackling the climate crisis. So all those climate change related initiatives from the Obama administration, Christy, I want to be clear that you're not saying they can no longer be implemented or or, or used. But this was a specific sort of provision that was part of the plan. Or is it all just. Yes. No, you were you were absolutely on target the first time. Um, And and a couple things looking back then as well. we have to remember, or maybe some people don't don't know. I mean, electric companies, well, any businesses are going to make decisions based upon the economics. Mm-hmm. So at the time, coal was slowly falling out of favor, but it's not it's not where it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, this was when natural gas was very low, but renewables were were very high. So electric companies um, really didn't want to close their coal plants before. Um, you know, before they were ready to, the term is before they hit their extended life uh, to them, that was very expensive. Um, and it kind of went from there. Hmm. What do we know about the Biden administration? And, and do they have to alter any of their climate change strategy? Does when you look at the Biden administrations and in comparison to obviously, well, we know what President Trump did. He rolled back a lot through executive orders. Is there still some some wiggle room, so to speak, for the Biden administration to impact some other initiatives as it relates to, particularly as it relates to carbon. I um, So I'm going to paraphrase the first sentence of a story written today by my, my coworker. It said something along the lines of President Biden needs everything to go right in order to meet his, his carbon emission and climate targets. So far, that hasn't happened. But even with this, the report that just came out, it came out, I think it was last summer. It, it was this global report that basically said we're burning pretty much. I mean, it's what it said. I mean, it's 900 pages, but in a nutshell, at the core of what it said is that, you know, the earth is, we're hotter. The temperatures, the earth's temperature was hotter than something, I don't know, something ridiculous. So does that help? Because if there's a, if we're part of the global initiative. Sure. Well, I mean, and for everyone that's tired of us talking about running, I'm going to bring it up again. Um, Monday was one of the most humid days we'd had in a long time. And the track club, in following very stringent safety rules on their end, um, started the race under a yellow flag, mm-hmm. which meant take heed, um, and then elevated it to a red flag. And, I mean, it's, um, you know, if you walk outside, it's it's hot, and the humidity is stifling. Um The Biden administration has um, political challenges and has logistics challenges. So let's break those down really quickly. Um, The 
the political challenges, I mean, we, we see what's happening in, in, in Congress now. They're at loggerheads at virtually everything, also, um, especially on things related to climate. And what what does that mean? That means um, some tax credits for renewables and other mm-hmm. new technologies hang in the balance. Um, you know, that could hamper other money flowing into into states and into areas that could use it mm-hmm. to make changes that are expensive. On the logistics end, um, Biden's Biden's targets not only just broadly would cause um, the remainder of our nation's coal plants to be shut down, it requires mm-hmm. other things to be done to natural gas. Mm-hmm. If it's going to operate cleaner than it is now, it's going to require, um, pardon my term, but gobs mm-hmm. of renewables and storage and additional technologies that are in the works, such as advanced nuclear um, hydrogen and things like that, but they have not been brought up to scale. So at this point, they're very expensive. And secondly, they've got to be proven to operate at scale or else the electric companies aren't going to use them. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't blame them. Speaking of how this relates to politics, let's talk about the Georgia Public Service Commission. And I was telling the team earlier as I got an email from a listener wrote, and I'm quoting here, Rose, thank you for talking about the PSC today. We vote for these people, and I have no clue what they do, close quote. (laughs) Well, emailer, today's your lucky day as we begin Georgia PSC uh, 101. First question, Chris, what do they do? Where do they come from? No. Um, I'll talk broadly, and then we can break it down for Georgia specifically. Um, The PSC is a body of people that oversee what is known as rate-regulated or basically um, shareholder-owned utilities. They are tasked with... Now, why did you have to say shareholder? I feel like that's a little bit leaning. I, well, I was, so I was about <laughs> ready to say, the, broadly, the term is, is public utilities. But, right. Um, I want to distinguish between... Um, a company like Southern Company who sure. owns Georgia Power that has shares sure. and has to answer to Wall Street as opposed to the municipal um, the municipal utilities. Like out of East the, Point. I think yes, East Point. Okay. and the rural cooperatives. Okay. Um, they, they still have to watch their bottom line mm-hmm. and watch their costs. Um, but they have their own um, they have their own boards mm-hmm. and uh, they don't trade stocks and um, they don't have shareholders to absorb cost should we get to that point. And these folks obviously are elected. How many members sit on the commission? So in Georgia, there are five. Um, they're elected statewide and um, they serve six year staggered terms. In some states, in some states, the commissions are elected. And in some states, they are appointed. That was my next question. I wanted to know, do all states have the same form? We just asked that, so obviously they don't. Who uh, sets Who sets the, is it from the governor's office? Who sets whether it can be an appoint, appointment or an election? Is that a legislative that's, provision? Yes. I mean, and, and again, that still might vary per state, but um, it would basically be set up in a, in a state statute. Um, because at various times this has happened in Florida, and I'm sure the state is not alone to change the way the commissioners are elected. And that typically is from, it might be from a particular decision that that body has made. And then so might be a movement to say they were appointed, we want them to be elected, or vice versa. So nonpartisan? Are these nonpartisan? Um, no, I was going to get into that, that, that whatever the process is, it's highly political. And I'm mm-hmm. sure now my inbox is going to, is going to fill up. Better um, yours than mine. <laughs> Cause usually they send them to me, but let's talk about this because we recently had with this late, with the last election, there was uh, a lot of drama, so to speak. But what was all that about in terms of someone being eligible and there was a lot of, the primary, yes, yeah. broadly, um, and and this uh, this was part of a bill that wound its way through 
the legislature, um, there, you know, there was, they were going through and redrawing districts as mm-hmm. we were going through. Um, that was my next question. How and, are the districts drawn here? Um, they're in line with the congressional districts. Um, and then um, there was a lot of noise being made about uh, a movement to to redraw a district to draw out a Democratic challenger mm-hmm. to an incumbent mm-hmm. Republican commissioner. And um, she's taken that to court. Yeah. And that is that's still unresolved, yeah, although we've already had the primary. It's going to be interesting, whatever their ruling is. Yeah, um, it's supposed to happen in the. It's supposed to happen in the in the fall, I believe, based upon everything that I've read. And a listener wants to know: Is there any regulatory or accountability for the for the PSC? Like, who holds them accountable? Do they have to answer to anyone? Well, so other than voters uh, in an election, right. but I was going to answer that on a couple of levels. I, I mean, absolutely, and and the commissioners will be the first to tell you that. You know, they're like, our jobs are on the line every you know every six years. Which also means then, um, but again, that's up to, as, as we know, I mean, people talk about this all the time. Do we have disenfranchised mm-hmm. voters or people able to get out? Do they remember, you know, someone who's really upset today, I mean, that hypothetically, about a decision? Are they going to remember that when they go vote in a couple years? Um, I also will say, if the PSC makes a decision that either party doesn't like. So again, in the hypothetical sense, let's mm-hmm. say they voted today on something. Yeah, uh, Georgia Power didn't like it. They they can. The first process they would do is ask the PSC to reconsider their decision. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up right. because in the past, when I've had some of the commissioners on, uh, 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 Bubba McDonald's been on, and I think Tim Eccles has been on before, and we've talked about criticisms from folks who say you all just pretty much always stamp whatever the big utilities want and then we're going to get into georgia power and plant vogel here in just a moment <laughs> but you know that has been a criticism and i imagine it's probably with maybe a lot of other commissions in other states sure. absolutely whether and absolutely whether, whether it's fair or not appointed or right. regulated well you know um and i again florida comes to mind um just because i i cover most of the utilities in the southeast um uh, North and South Carolina are are others where um, the electric companies have not agreed with mm-hmm. the body's decision. So they ask for a rehearing, and then that's that's done. So then they have the legal pathway to take them to court. Mm-hmm. That also can happen on the other side. Um, just just thinking off the top of my head, you know, the Sierra Club or a consumer group or I mean anybody, uh, as long as they were a party in that case can say, hey, I need you to re-decide this. Can can Georgia's PSC, can they back measures and bills, or do they try to stay out of that? Um, they'll, they'll tell you they'll try to stay out of it, saying, you know, this is related to across the street. I mean, again, um, there's a there's a budget component of it. So mm-hmm. when they're having budget hearings and things, um, they'll, they'll appear, but that's because they've got to defend or justify their expenses mm-hmm. um and um but no i mean i i remember calling um he's not at the commission now uh but it was chairman chuck eaton when mm-hmm. i was sitting in an uh house energy committee uh this was years ago rose but um uh representative don parsons like at the end of the committee was talking about regulation and then he said you know one day we might not need a public service commission. Now, again, Mm -hmm. this is another example of the countless ones we have every day of an elected official talking off the top of his head. But I said, I think I remember that. Yes. So I had to call (laughs) Chairman Eaton and I said, well, uh, hey, he just said this. And I will in in Parsons' defense. Again, we have to look and the energy industry is changing so much. And so rose like the telecom industry where mm-hmm. we all had these landline phones. There's so many things now. There's so many devices mm-hmm. and so many um, commodities that aren't really commodities that aren't regulated. So I will say in his defense, that's what he was getting at. But um, it, it made for a, a humorous and somewhat stressful day. <laughs> the voice you hear is veteran environment and climate reporter Christy Swartz with E&E News. And, you know, 
I just pulled up my George. I love to do this whenever I talk about Plant Vogel. I just logged in and pulled up my Georgia Power Bill. And I'm not going to tell you all how much my current service is, but I'm going to go line item. There's my current service. There's the environmental compliance cost. I think that's a that's a broad that's a, yeah, that, that's fine. The term is rider. Right. That refers There's to the nuclear construction cost recovery. Yes. Take it away. <laughs> this has been on my bill for a very, very long time, along with millions and millions of other folks. So with any gigantic power plant or really with any gigantic um, construction project or with a house, um, there's there's finance costs sure. and then there's capital and construction costs. So. Where are we with Plant Vogel, Christy? <laughs> Um, according to Southern Company, which owns Georgia Power, um, they are now forecasting for the first unit to start up early next year. Okay. And the second one to start up later in the year. That's their their latest imprinted stuff. We have three and four? Yes. Okay. Customers have been paying the finance cost for a while. The idea when this bill was floated and passed very quickly more than um, more than a decade ago mm-hmm. was that paying down these costs early would reduce uh, interest rates um, right. among other things. Nuclear plants are challenging because um, because of their regulations and because of the safety they are the most expensive power plants. Is this the only are these the only nuclear units being built? In the U.S.? Currently, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Southern and others are looking at, again, I said um, advanced nuclear reactor. That's kind of the catch-all phrase for a new generation of reactors that are supposed to be much smaller and what the industry is saying cheaper. In terms of affordable power to our homes and businesses and all that that that's the end goal here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in part because they are are smaller the way that they are designed the way that they would be um clustered for the lack of a better term um there are some safety requirements that they would not have to have but yes there were along the road along the road here there have been some questions hey at some point should southern have maybe scrapped the idea. I think there was something with Westinghouse and somebody went bankrupt and it was just all these optics around. And, and, and basically what we heard was it's too late to turn back. It's It's been a road um, and it's been rocky. Um, let's, let's go back a little bit. The forecasted budget when this was proposed to regulators, which again included state and gobs of federal regulators. Um, the targeted budget was to be 14 billion and mm-hmm. we're at 30. So how did we get here? Again, I wanna stress the safety and regulatory aspects of building a nuclear plant. Um, did COVID slow any of this down? Yes. And, and the supply chain, I imagine, as well? Yes, yes, yes. Um, right away, there was, you know, it took a little while to get this information out of them, but um, their CEO would talk on uh, earnings calls to Wall Street about, you know, we're we're in the home stretch, you know, um, but this is where the work gets really tight and really technical. We've got people working in close mm-hmm. quarters. So hmm. now you've got to start social distancing. And I don't know anything about building a nuclear plant, but what I know from doing lots of heavy kind of hard to social my distance house. when you got it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to social distance when you're doing. Of course not. Putting up a shelf in your house for your two cats is quite different than building <laughs> a nuclear. I want folks to know this distinction here just in case cuz you do have two cats and That's fair. That's fair. Know, That's uh, fair. Um but, but, right. but the I completion mean, date, to... the the completion date, Crystal, what are you hearing? What what do we know? Um they formally haven't moved from from early next year, um, we'll we'll know soon um, because the the ju- the June quarter has ended. So Southern will be um, talking about Vogel status mm-hmm. soon, and there are some additional hearings coming up at at the Public Service Commission. Um, but yes, there was um, there was an impact from COVID. Mm-hmm. There was and has been an impact from the supply chain. Um, and we hear that across the board from all the electric companies. Mm. Um, 
you mentioned the bankruptcy with Westinghouse. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want me to go into that or nah, because at this point people are like, you know what? Just tell us when it's going. To yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's gonna... like the Beltline. Which one's going to be finished first, the Beltline <laughs> or Planet? Plant Vogel. I don't it's know. been a long road. It's been a rocky road, as I often say in my stories. Vogel was built for one thing and is being continued for another. And what I mean by that is they wanted to and needed to diversify um, their kind of their fuel and their electricity mix. Mm-hmm. Um, the industry wanted nuclear to make a comeback. Um, I'm going to stay away from the word renaissance, but um, there there was a huge push to bring large nuclear plants back. Mm. Now, um, Southern has its own goals to be a net zero carbon company by 2050. Other utilities have the same. And then we have federal targets. Um, And so they're going to need that carbon-free electricity. You have been covering climate and environment issues for such a long time. When you think about when you started and then where you are now and then how, and I say that your beat wasn't a a fun beat back then, just saying, you know, but things change. I mean, now the climate and environment, and it should have been. I mean, we've always known it was an important news and information that we needed to disseminate to, to our, our audience, to folks. But it now it's just, I mean, the last, I would say the last maybe decade is really climate and environment. Folks want to know about the climate and environment. Um, the great thing is it's a very complicated topic, but the challenge is it's a very complicated topic. And that's where you that's why you cover it, so I don't have to. <laughs> and you do a very good job of it. Thank you. Climate and Environment Reporter Christy Swartz with E and E News. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Congratulations on completing yet another Peachtree Road race and say hi to your little felines that you have over. What are their names? Snoopy and Lucy. Snoopy and Lucy. They should be proud of you. <laughs> This was fun, Rose. Thank you so much. All right, now come back. And Closer Look continues from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Parkinson's disease. Here's what we know. One million Americans are living with Parkinson's disease and about 60,000 are diagnosed each year. And behind Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease is the second most common neurodegenerative disorder in the United States. And studies have shown that while black Americans might be less likely to develop the disease, those who are diagnosed are more likely to have delayed diagnosis, worse outcomes, and higher mortality compared to white patients. Now, that comes from Morehouse School of Medicine. Well, tomorrow, a symposium will take place, Parkinson's disease in the African-American community. The keynote speaker is Dr. Chantel Branson, professor of neurology at both Morehouse School of Medicine as well as Boston University Medical Center, and is now taking the time to speak with Closer Look. Dr. Branson, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. I want to just say I am a fan. I'm a Georgia native, originally from Georgia, uh, and I went to Clark Carolina University for undergrad. So thank you again. AUC is proud. Let's begin here with with because uh, when I was doing my research on this and I didn't know this, this goes back. Parkinson's disease goes back to 1817, and while this is a progressive disorder, we know it affects the nervous system. What do we know now about Parkinson's disease? Has there been a lot of research that has given you all more insight into possible treatments and, and therapies? Where are we now with this? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. For those in the audience who do not know what Parkinson's disease, I'll just give a brief overview. It is a clinical diagnosis. There are four symptoms or features, basically, that we look for to evaluate for Parkinson's. One of them most people think of is tremor, and that is a feature of it, uh, but you don't need tremor as the diagnosis. Another one, it may be stiffness. We call that rigidity, as well as Sometimes people have slowness in their movements and mm-hmm. difficulty with standing. Sometimes they have what we call postural instability. They feel like they're going to fall backwards. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot. We've learned a lot over the years with regards to Parkinson's disease. We want to learn more and to know more about it. We do now know that people can have Parkinson's disease without having that diagnosis or that tremor that most people look for or think mm-hmm. of. And sometimes the symptoms can be 
a bit vague, right? So stiffness or rigidity, that can sometimes be related to other problems. But we want to have Parkinson's disease and have people to think about Parkinson's disease while they're thinking about some of their problems and, and mm. symptoms. We know that the cause of Parkinson's disease is related to a decrease or a low dopamine in the part of the brain that is affecting it. And therefore we have studies and research that has shown us over the years that if we can at least temporarily try to improve or increase this dopamine, that that can help with the treatment of Parkinson's disease. What are some of the misperceptions about Parkinson's disease? I think often sometimes we we know there have been some notable uh, beloved uh, celebrities and entertainers. Obviously, we know with, uh, with uh, Muhammad Ali, Michael J. Fox, I mean, in, uh, Senator, I believe, uh, Johnny Isaacson here, our late senator here. Um, but I think there's this perception that it, it usually only affects mostly men. Right. Yes. And and actually, that is true. That is true. That is a potential risk factor in older men, men over the age of 65. Really? But that there is a misperception to think that it's just old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the symptoms, like I said, uh, particularly related to that slowness, the stiffness, they may not have the tremor. Uh, it's just, oh, I'm just getting old. You know how, you know, oh, my grandmother or my mother has some of these same problems. So my walking or some people can have shuffling of gait. And so that may not be just old age. And that is a really a big misperception that we want to try to get out this weekend to make help people understand, particularly in the African-American. When you talk about getting this message out to the black community in the past, has it been in Listen, when you and I both know we talk about equity, which in, within health and, and wellness as it relates to disparities. Look, we could have a whole nother conversation about that. Is it because I think often when we see the face of a certain disease that can exclude a community or we th- or because we may not know anybody we think oh this primary doesn't affect the black community so there really hasn't been a lot of campaign and awareness around it and this has been going on for some decades now not just you know right. within the last few years yes yes and that's why we have a little um research as well correct we have assigned this to just being a certain type of disease mainly uh, caucasian white and white um it, American disease. And and so we want to kind of change that misperception because when we do that, people get left behind. We don't have the proper research or support, mm-hmm. you know, and just understanding that this is, you know, I want to emphasize inclusion, right? Inclusion in every aspect of medicine. And therefore, often, particularly with Parkinson's disease, we want to get the word out to help you people understand that this should be something that we should be thinking about within our community as well. And it has affected people within our own community. The risk factors you touched on a little bit, but can we take that a little bit further for, and I just got an email from a listener that wants to know more about what are the risk factors for this disease? Right. Yeah. So as I said before, based on our studies, uh, most of the time, correct, there are usually risk factors associated with older men, more white Americans than black or black Americans have the disease. Um, but once again, most of the studies that we've done or looked at, um, they haven't really traditionally included um, a diversity within those studies. Mm-hmm. And while many of these risk factors are based on our research that we've done in the past, not having that inclusion part can sometimes alter or um, be a problem with the, some of the research that we have going on now. Do we have, do we know, has there been any latest research, this is in your wheelhouse, as people yes. folks say, that reveals uh, something about this disease in black Americans? Yeah, definitely. So we have been doing some research and we've been looking mainly at what could be some features of reasons why often you said in the introduction about a delay in the diagnosis. There's not just a delay in the diagnosis, there's also a delay in treatment. Uh, of Parkinson's disease among African-Americans or Black um, people. And so understanding why that is happening and how do we prevent it is the reason why I'm here today. I, I have a listener, actually it's a friend of mine who just texted me and said, well, what should one be, at what age then should someone start even asking their doctor, do you have to give tests, they, they text, do you roll, should we get tests? You know, I want to know more. Our listeners yeah, are very, definitely, definitely. They're I very curious. 
<laughs> so uh, basically it is a clinical diagnosis, meaning you will need to see a provider. Ideally, it's great to have a movement specialist um, to evaluate you, but because of the, there's not many of us um, in this field and in this particular region, uh, starting with your primary care doctor and talking to them about some of the symptoms that you may have and uh, mentioning that to them is the beginning stages. And they are based on four of those features that I talked about before. So we're looking more from a clinical perspective to so an examination and evaluation. There's no like blood test mm -hmm. or anything of that nature as of yet. Is it hereditary? Correct. Yes, there are. So that goes back to the causes. It can be hereditary. Mm -hmm. uh, there are genetic causes and we have tests and studies that are going on now as well to evaluate for genetic causes and how do we, what do we do with that? There are other causes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be sometimes environmental factors as well. And then sometimes we call it, we call it idiopathic, meaning as We've, we've looked for other causes, sometimes environmental factors such as metal, whole metal um, in people in areas with welding and things of that nature, hmm. um, or coal mining and things of that nature can be affected. But if we can't find a cause, then we call it idiopathic. Can any type of trauma to the brain or a head injury or repeated concussions, you know, folks talked about this when Muhammad Ali was alive, he was a, one of the greatest boxers, we know how damaging that can be. I mean, look, you got folks going coming after your head. I mean, do we what do we know about that in terms of trauma or, or repeated trauma to the brain? Can that lead to Parkinson's? Yes, yes, definitely. And he's a great example of that. But it can be um, other concussions that are not as um, that level of impact as well. Um, we see this in Marines and people or uh, people in the military who mm -hmm. were um dealing with that as well. So yes, yeah, so there, as I said before, there's a decrease or decline on the dopamine. And if that part of the brain is affected by anything, it would be a stroke. It could be a problem with concussions, any sort of impact to affect that part of the brain that, that has the dopamine in there, then that can cause Parkinson's, symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And Dr. Branson, I want to make sure that we're clear with this with our listeners too. There are treatments and therapies. There's no cure. Right. The treatments are what we call symptomatic, meaning we want to help with either the symptoms that the person may have. And going back to those misperceptions. So oftentimes people think, well, there's nothing you can do anyway. So why, you know, what, what, what is the reason? We want to make sure that for as long as you possibly can have your continued quality of life and make sure that you continue your activity of daily livings, make sure that you can, if you like to paint, you can paint, you can do some of the things that you enjoy doing. So many of the treatments that we have help with improving, increasing that dopamine in the brain over a shorter period. Does research reveal that there is uh, perhaps some other types of treatments, alternative, holistic, integrated medicines and therapies and treatments. I know I get all kinds of emails about that, but we need to be fair um, about yeah. that, you know? Definitely, that is. that is. And one of the most important treatment is exercise. Uh, what people really don't understand is the importance of exercise, uh, particularly with this particular disease. And it has shown to even delay or slow the progression of the disease, exercise. Mm -hmm. The importance of the, the, I want to go back to the clinical trials for a moment because I've had this conversation too, the importance of, we always talk about diverse participants in clinical trials, but as it relates to Parkinson's disease, are you starting, are you all starting to see a little bit of an increase in, in people of color, black folks participating in these clinical trials and, and, and therapies? Yeah, that's why I joined Moore Health. That's why I came back to Atlanta. Um, I've done, as you said before, all of my training in Boston. And I wanted to join Moore Health School of Medicine, particularly to just get the word out and to start some of this. You know, we talk about inclusion of everything in medicine. And the best way for us to understand the treatment options, the therapies and all that means that we have to do this research. And my goal is to increase the number of uh, black or underrepresented minorities in general to participate in trials, to be a part of the studies. I tell people all of the time, you're either going to be a part of it before the FDA approves it or after, because you're these are the medications that will be the standard for the therapies that we give to people with Parkinson's disease. And so it's good to just take ownership of that and participate in those trials. 
Matter of fact, Kimberly uh, on Twitter says, thank you for this talk about Parkinson's. We need more information in the black community. My dad was diagnosed in his early 50s. So more information. What questions do people often ask you about Parkinson's disease and has relates to the research? And listen, we're all dealing with COVID. We know about the issues that folks have with the vaccine and, and the research and all that. But as relates particularly to the black community, what questions yeah. do folks mostly have for you? Yeah, great question. So the most common question is, uh, what is what is going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. You know, they may see someone on TV that looks a certain way, or they may have a family member, or a remote person or cousin or family friend who has Parkinson's disease. And that's part of the misconceptions. You know, just because this person is affected in this way doesn't mean you will have those same symptoms. I tell people all the time, Parkinson's disease affects each individual person differently. And the other one is that often these problems are not just related to what we call motor symptoms. So I talked about the tremor, the stability, the instability, the gait problems and movement. There can be what we call non-motor symptoms. Mm -hmm. And also we call them premotor. So premotor are problems that can occur 10 to 15 years prior to the diagnosis or seeing some of the movement problems. And so often talking about some of those non-motor symptoms is so important, particularly within our community, because once again, we may not think that it's related to the Parkinson's disease itself, but when it may be. Let me ask you this. What about in, around the world? Are we seeing other new therapies or treatments or any new research outside of the U.S. here? Yes, we are. Work, they are working on something more international, not really therapies, really just understanding how many people are being affected uh, by this particular disease um, outside of the United States. Uh, within the United States, there are several different trials and therapy research studies going on. One of them is looking at exercise. Mm-hmm. looking to see how much exercise one may need to decrease or slow the progression of the disease. So that is, you know, that doesn't even require a medication or anything of that nature. And it's so important to participate in that in, in various different studies. This used to be called a mysterious disease, but we know more. And just about just based on what you said, this segment here, so much has been learned about this. What is still complexing about this or mysterious to you as a researcher here? Right, a lot of that includes some of those, what I talked about before, the non-motor problems. Like some of the problems that can be associated with Parkinson's disease uh, can occur. There are pre-motor problems, there are non-motor problems. Pre-motor problems can be a decrease in the smell. Some people have problems with dreams and vivid dreams, we call it REM behavior disorder, abnormal movements at night. And some of the non-motor problems can be depression. It can be constipation. Mm-hmm. Some of the problems that we may in daily life think, well, you know, I just have that for, you know, just because, you know. Um, but understanding, trying to really understand that connection between Parkinson's disease, that decrease in that dopamine and how it can affect something as simple as your, your you know, constipation or something of that nature. I'm curious, Dr. Branson, why this was why neurology, why this was a passion for you here? Yeah, was- thank you. Great, great question. Um, I uh, Just to give you some personal background, my paternal, I was in medical school and my paternal grandmother was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. And there was a delay in the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And we, you know, my family on my dad's side and my family in general, you know, we really are encouraged to really understand and learn and knowledge is of power. Um, but for, you know, various different reasons that information was not related to us as a family. And therefore um, that decline in her caused a toll, right, on our family. And it just doesn't, that's another misconception. It doesn't just affect the individual that mm-hmm. is dealing with it. It can affect family members and loved ones. As most neurodegenerative disease can occur. And therefore, it became a passion of mine to really get the word out to other people so that, you know, one day they don't have to deal with or, you know, have a better understanding mm-hmm. of how Parkinson's disease can affect their family members and their loved ones as well. You're given the keynote address tomorrow at the Morehouse School of Medicine. What will be the core part of your message? Yes, the core part is just really, it is important to understand that Parkinson's disease is a disorder meaning it is a disease. It's not a part of old age. It's not a, it's just not a part of life. 
there are things that we can do. There are treatment options. Um, this is not normal and it's not always associated with a tremor. Mm -hmm. And I just want to get it out to everyone that, you know, we're talking about inclusion in every aspect of society today, right? Outside of medicine, everyone is talking about inclusion. It is so important that we uh, as minorities, uh, underrepresented minorities in, in diverse communities are included, included in research. And that's really what I want to get the word out today, and tomorrow. That's, and that's what you all do at Morehouse School of Medicine. So uh, Dr. Chantel Branson, professor of neurology at Morehouse School of Medicine, as well as with Boston University Medical Center, giving the keynote address for tomorrow's symposium, Parkinson's disease in the African-American community. Is that open to the public? I just got an email. Yes, up and it's free and there's dinner. I mean, not dinner, breakfast. <laughs> get that in there because it'll get them. What time does it take place? It is the size at 10. And it's from 10 to 1230. You do need to register. You do need to register. Uh, you can go to our website at www.msm.edu. Right. It should be on there for that. Um, but you will need to register. Y'all register. Just don't show up. I know. <laughs> Dr. Branson, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you all have been doing for the community, and thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rezell. Our intern is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of this, if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as our podcast, because we have one. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And subscribe to our other wonderful shows, too. I really mean that. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.